Shannon Dreyer here, and not on vacation. You would think, right? But no worries. That's going to come. We wanted to get this rolling early. I thought that was important. You might recall a couple of years ago during the offseason, we ran a number of Mariners Week That Was on Seattle Sports Podcast. We're going to be doing that again this year on what we feel is going to be an extremely important offseason for the Mariners. If you haven't heard it before, we grab all of the Mariners or MLB interviews that were heard on the station in a week and put them all in one place. I chime in here and there with additional insight where I can. And new this year, we're also going to check in with the folks on our website and have conversations about some of their interesting posts. So let's get to it. The Mariners week that was on Seattle sports, we, of course, start on Monday. Aaron Goldsmith was a guest on Brock and Salk with Matt Stretch Johnson sitting in with Brock. If you don't know, Brock and Aaron have a little bit of history having broadcast college football games together. So that relationship, let's just say it comes shining through throughout this interview. There's some laughs, but there are also some serious moments as Goldsmith puts the season into his words, tackles the good to great question, as well as takes a look at the what next for the Mariners. Here's that conversation from the Brock and Salk show. Aaron Goldsmith, how are you, buddy? Hey, good morning, guys. How are you doing? Oh, you know, it's been, uh, let's see, blowout, compelling game, blowout, compelling game, blowout, blowout, blowout. So two for seven for us this year. If we were a baseball hitter, it'd be good. But you're not missing not missing a lot in the broadcast booth with me. It's been a lot of blowout theater so far. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if there's anybody prepared to call yep. a game that has no significance after halftime, Brock. Yep. I you, think it'd be you. We got our guy. You and That's I did it, Goldie. Time. You and I did it a couple <laughs> times. We we did it in Benetti now, and, yeah, we just uh, try to keep it on rolling. Uh, are you calling uh, any of these playoff games? What are, is, Or is the hay in the barn? Are you resting the vocal cords till till February, March? A lot of rest. A lot of rest, yeah. No, it's uh, – I, I, at this point, I go as the Mariners go, my friend. So oh. I, uh, I've, I've been I've – been, Dadding and husbanding for the last week. It's back uh, back to normalcy. Aaron, this is stretch. I, I have a question, he and knows. I'm being dead he, serious. You can tell who it is. I know we've you never met. Stop it, Brock. Stop with the coffee. Are you exhausted? Were you exhausted after the season? And, and and I'm being dead serious. Like you got done with the roller coaster. You work your tail off. You do so much behind the scenes, and you got done. Did it take a couple days? Obviously, you have a family and kids want to hang out. But were you exhausted? You know, I was not as exhausted at the end of the season as I was. And maybe there was a point in September where they, you know, they had that long East Coast trip uh, that that ended in Tampa Bay, and they played like 13 in a row. And that I was far more tired after that. Once you get back home and you kind of get your legs back underneath mm-hmm. you again, and you're not bouncing around time zones, it's okay. But I mean, more to the maybe the bigger bigger question you ask of just kind of the, the length of the season. I think you do, just like a player, you build up a certain level of endurance for it and you just kind of get used to it. Uh, but I think more than anything, even if you're not physically gassed, you're just, there is something to be said about being able to resume a, a sense of a normal life and your family, your kids in particular, not wondering when are you packing your bag. Like when the suitcase comes out of the Goldsmith household, yeah. it's like the Grim Reaper, man. Yeah, they just know um, and so gone. when when that thing gets put away uh, up upstairs and tucked away for the wintertime, that, that makes the kids very happy and, and thus makes me happy as well. So I had a little early flight from Kansas City yesterday and get get to church. And this guy in front of me at church was the most amazing journaler. He was journaling. It was almost as if he was transcribing the message. I was like, this is amazing. So sermon ends, church ends, and I go up to him, total stranger. I said, bro, you are an amazing journaler. 
I just, I was captivated by how you could write as much as you could write. I tell all of you that because I'm curious, Mr. Goldsmith. A, do you ever journal? Are you a journaler yourself? I'm not a journaler. Okay. Um, One day, could you be a writer? One day, could you see yourself writing a book on all of the different chapters of these baseball seasons of your life? No. Man, I just I went over two. I'm as bad as your broadcast. I just went over two on you. That's okay. That's um, okay. No, okay. No, we're fine. No, like, we're fine. I just, I'm, I'm, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I like, I, I've never thought about that, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if I could pull that off. Right? Will you? All right, now, you strike me as like, holy man, you have multiple. You have so many journals. Like, if you lose a journal, yes. you don't even notice you have yes. so many journals. That's right, Would Aaron. you ghostwrite? Mm. Would you ghostwrite my book for me one day in I like could. 40 years? I could. And that was one of my weirdo moments as I'm realizing I'm talking and all three people's eyes are looking at me like, where is he going with this? Where is he going with this? Like, Benetti will do this in meetings with me now, too. Like, where are you going to be able to land the plane here? Where, where are you leading him? Where are we going here? But I say all of that to ask you about this season. If you were to write a book about this season— in all of the different chapters of it, what would be the overall theme when 162 went in the barn? Well, first of all, you're obviously having me on for a pretty long segment if that was your lead-in. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Okay, so I'm going to tell the kids to make their own breakfast. Guys, you're on your own. Um, I think the... I think the overall theme of this year, and it isn't necessarily that different, maybe from uh, this uh, the previous season, is the season is long, and there is almost always more time left in the year than what your emotions want you to believe that there actually is. Mm. Um, a little long for a chapter name there. Yep. Uh, but I, I would like say, like the. Very rarely in a Major League Baseball season, very rarely, is the sky actually falling. Uh, It feels like it often, not just for the Mariners, but for every team. But very rarely is it actually doomsday. And I, I hope that I can remember that for years to come. I hope fans remember that forever. Um, and I understand that it's, it's an emotional thing, sports and a baseball season, and it's, it's very easy to get worked up on it and into it. But, I mean, the Mariners obviously had a disappointing finish. There's no way around that. But they, the bell didn't really ring for them until July 1st. I mean, think about that. April, May, June. And it was two steps forward, two steps back, and something like that week after week. And then – now, are they, it's funny, you know, two years ago we said, or I should take it back, this year we said, well, they're not going to go on a 14-game winning streak again. And next year we're going to say, well, they're not going to win 21 games in August again. And it does feel like those things are not necessarily uh, repeatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet they have found a way to do something in that vein each year. And yet, you know, I say all that, and this year they had the they were the complete antithesis of who they have been in close late games, right? Yep. And they still got almost 90 wins. So obviously that element was not repeatable, but other things were. And it's like it's every year it's a little bit different, but there has been something in particular the last two years where this this team kind of has to hit rock bottom, mm-hmm. and then it like. 
they pour the, the jet fuel on things and they take off, whether that's a 14-game win streak or a 21-win month of August or whatever it might be. Uh, so it is there is typically more time. There's typically more time than we all think that there is. Boy, I don't mean to sound like old man Johnson here, but is the doomsday thought process around to stay? And I don't, you know, I bring up social media and I bring up um, just everything under a microscope, but you're so close to it. You know, it's 162. When you're going to these games in June, are you saying to yourself, when will it turn around? When will I have a comeback win to broadcast or when will I have a, a Crawford double down in the corner to win an unbelievably explosive game? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think my, I think my leash, my tolerance, my patience is significantly greater or longer than the average fan. And it should be like the fan should be more emotional. and I should be less emotional. Um, I watch every game every year so I have more of a database to go off of than even probably the very dedicated fan. Um, that being said, there were multiple times this past season where I kind of looked around and I said to myself, like, it's just not going to happen this year. I don't, it's not going to happen. Like I, th- today convinced me it's not going to happen. And that was in early June, mid June, late June, right. Uh, before things really took off, of course, uh, because like when Patrick Corbin shoves seven innings against you uh, at home, you think, yeah, maybe it's not going to happen. This looks pretty flat. Um, but as is the Mariners' MO, <laughs> for whatever reason, the last couple of years, they have to find their low point, and then they take off. And, and that happened like two years ago. It was, for those who remember, it was you Darvish in San Diego, I think in May. And, then they took off, and this year was kind of around that Patrick Corbin game uh, against the Nationals. But you definitely have that feeling uh, from time to time. Heck, man, I don't know. I don't know who anybody who's not invested can not have those moments where you think that. Um, and but I, but I also know. Hopefully, I know, and next year I'll know even better that hey, you can get on a, you can go on a beat on a on a heater, and you can start to win some series and click them off and all of a sudden September one rolls around and you're in position. Unfortunately, they couldn't finish it this year in September, uh, but they did put themselves in that position. There's no doubt. Uh, last couple things here with Aaron Goldsmith. However, I would say, however, to that you, when you go up and down on that roller coaster, it means 90 wins, 90, 90 wins, 88 wins. It doesn't mean hundred wins, right? It doesn't mean it, it means you can be really good, but how do you then get to great? How do you then take the next step? Goldie, over the next couple months here, are going to be a lot of conversation on these airwaves all over this market, all over town, all over water coolers and coffee shops, and Mariners fans wanting to take that next step. How do they go about doing it in your mind? I think I think the good to great narrative is a fair one, and I know Jerry used that terminology as well on your program not long ago. And I do think that there is some, I do think there is some truth to what he referenced to you guys about continuing to go through their processes year after year does, you know, you're tilling the soil and it gets better and better. And the reason why I do believe that there is truth to that is because I've seen it. I've seen it go from bad to average to good, right? I've seen when you have the same personnel in the same roles or generally the same roles with the same processes month after month, season after season. I I have watched it before my very eyes as fans have, whether they realize it or not, 
start to click and start to gain traction. And all of a sudden, the tire's not just spinning. You're actually moving forward. Like That has happened. Now, is that all that it's going to take? Probably not. Right? I think we're all, we all understand that. I know Jerry and Justin understand that. Scott understands that. That eventually, even though you will have, in theory, a year better Julio, a year better Cal, go down the roster, go down the very young roster generally for the Mariners, you do, be, you do trust and believe that, that they do get better every year. There is no question that they will need to add. I mean, they, they had to add at the deadline. What they did at the deadline, particularly getting Rojas at second base, that takes care of an offseason problem. You now have a platoon at second base that if you didn't get Rojas at the deadline, it's a barren market. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a bad free agent class. I don't know what you do. They've got that handled. Uh, what's going to happen to Teoscar? Uh, are they, is he going to come back, whether it be through uh, accepting a qualifying offer or rejecting it and signing as a free agent? I mean, there's obviously those, those avenues to go through. But they're, they're going to have to add just by the sheer nature of the beast of losing players uh, like potentially Teoscar. So I think the good news for the Mariners Another takeaway, uh, maybe for the epilogue. I don't know, Brock, if that's yep. the beginning of the book or the end of the book. No, we're near the end um, of it now. Yep. Okay. No, already. That's surprising. <laughs> yeah. Um, is I is that we know, guys? We know what Mariners baseball looks like, and I realized that in September when we didn't see it. Like there were series at a time where we did not see Mariners baseball. Like we clearly know what winning Mariners baseball look like. Looks like right. It's great starting pitching. It's just tremendous pitching in general. It's run prevention, drawing walks, hitting home runs, and hopefully controlling the strike zone, which we saw ebb and flow, of course, over the course of the season. So they, they have the model. They have the blueprint, and they have seen it be an effective formula to get to 90 wins or thereabouts. And now it's a matter of finding the people who fit that and make it better, yeah. right? And I think the other positive for the Mariners in the last three years in particular is that they have found – they have found a culture. Like they have, they have leaders in the clubhouse. We see that very clearly. They have a culture. They have a core. So those are all positive things. I mean, they're, they are actually in, like going back to the guy's not following, they're in much better position than a lot of teams in Major League Baseball, yep. which I understand is not a satisfying answer for people who want to see the Mariners playing right now, just like I do. Hmm. Uh, but there are things in place that hopefully if you just turn the dial a little bit here, a little bit there, whatever that might be, potentially hmm. maybe from the list of personnel, you're back in October next year. He is the man. He is Aaron Goldsmith. We didn't even get time to uh, play some of your great calls. Probably do that over the course of the show today. I'd buy his journal. I'd buy that journal. Yeah, I think you yeah. should look into it, you know, every yeah. offseason. No, just, uh, don't do it. How do you go from good to great? I mean, and we've watched you, Aaron, evolve from bad to average <laughs> to good. How are you now going to get to great? Yeah. Just take that next step. Go take care of breakfast and get the kids to school. Thank you, Goldie. Hey, thank you, guys. <laughs> It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, let's do it again at 730, Brock. Have a great morning. See you. There he goes. Hey, and everybody. There goes Aaron Goldsmith, the great Aaron Goldsmith. 
While Goldsmith gave the up-close-and-personal look on the Mariners Monday morning, Monday afternoon on Wyman and Bob, Dave Wyman and Mike Lefko were looking for a more national perspective on a number of topics surrounding the Mariners. That included the end-of-the-year press conference, what to make of Julio's season, reaction to the Seawald trade, and more. For that, they turned to MLB.com and Network's Mike Petriello, who kind of went against the grain of what many national folks saw for the Mariners heading into the season. I think they ended up about where I thought they'd be. I would say that the shape of it certainly wasn't that. You know, I didn't expect Julio Rodriguez to struggle for two months and then be red hot for two months. Uh, but I, I kind of thought that they would be like on the periphery of the playoff race and maybe just miss it. And that's where they ended up. You know, there are a lot of positives in the season, but I don't know that at the end of the day, I was that surprised by the way things ended. And Mike, what do you think that led to? Was it, you know, not doing enough in the offseason? Were there some holes just relative to everyone else in the American League? Why did you ultimately think, you know, that the Mariners wouldn't and then, you know, they didn't make it? Yeah, I think I know uh, Cal Raleigh's statements got a lot of press everywhere and, and here in New York as well. And I, I partially agreed with them, but not entirely, right? Like they did go sign Robbie Ray. I know Luis Castillo was not a free agent signing, but you certainly traded players for him and then paid him. So that counts to me. But it kind of comes down to the offense. I think heading into the season, it was pretty clear the offense wasn't going to be good enough. And I'll say one thing that almost changed my mind on that is nobody saw, I don't think, J.P. Crawford performing as well as he did. He was fantastic. You know, after two years of everybody saying they should get a better shortstop, they should get a better shortstop, he made huge improvements. And that was incredibly impressive to me. But even still, you look at the offense and, you know, Julio Rodriguez is a star, obviously. I believe Crawford's improvements are not a fluke. I believe they're maintainable. But it still feels, you know, two bats short, maybe. If you're trying to match up against Houston and you're trying to match up against Texas and some of the other wildcard teams in the East and Central, uh, it, it's not enough. You know, you have to go out there and get at least one or two new bats, especially since Teoscar Hernandez uh, can depart via free agency. Yeah, and I, and I think Cal was speaking for a lot of the fan base as well who went into the, coming out of this offseason going, the offensive problems are not new. This has been right. three years at least in a row that where pitching has carried them, pitching and defense, the offense wildly inconsistent, not a very deep lineup. Uh, so when they go out and they get A.J. Pollock and they get Colton Wong and they get Tommy LaStella, we're all going, huh? You know, Tay Oscar, everybody loved that move, but it was everything else around it that ultimately didn't work out. So let me fast forward with you, Mike, and, and ask you about Jerry's press conference. I'm, I'm sure you heard the, the statements there that he made uh, in terms of winning 54%, and he, he went on to sort of clarify what he meant by that, but also in that conference said, we're doing the fans a favor by asking them to be patient. And he said he was trying to be funny. Fans out here, as you might understand, after a two-decade drought for the postseason, never want to hear the word patience, ever. Even as a joke, it's not funny. It's going to be poorly received as it was. What, what was your reaction to that? Yeah, anytime you see an executive make a statement and then a couple of days later do his best to walk it back and apologize and say he didn't really mean it like that, you know that he knows that he said something that wasn't going to come off well. And, you know, obviously I'm not a Seattle native. I'm not a Mariners fan, but I know enough people who are to know that, what is it, 47 seasons now without a World Series ring? Asking for more patience uh, is going to be a tough ask for anybody, especially when, you know, this has been kind of hyped. Like we're getting to a point as Mariners fans where we're not rebuilding, we're trying to win now. And it just hasn't happened yet. So I think I understand what he was trying to say in the context of with the expanded playoffs, you don't necessarily 
need to build a 95 win team to get in and win, right? Like we saw that last year with the Phillies and the Padres in the NLCS, where I believe neither team even made it to 90 wins in the regular season. You know, because of the expanded playoffs, you can sort of look at it and say, we don't need to be the best team in the league, just need to get into the, the tournament and then hope things go our way. And while I do get that, that's not a terribly exciting way to sell a baseball team, I think. You know, you want to be like, we're trying to be as as productive as we can. We're not just trying to buy a lottery ticket each year. And I, I think he knows that. I think the way that the words came out, as he said, were not exactly as intended. So um, a misstep, I would say yes, but I don't think it's anything that's going to necessarily change the fact that this should be pretty good and competitive and hopefully exciting team next year. Yeah, Mike, does it heighten the urgency a little bit, though, when you look at, okay, the Astros, they're just not going anywhere. They stay consistent, and they're on the cusp again of another ALCS, and the Rangers all of a sudden have surged past the Mariners. Does it feel like those two teams will be ones that the Mariners have to chase down for the next few years? Yeah, absolutely, especially you look at the West, and you know the A's are nowhere near contending, and the Angels are almost certainly going to lose Otani, and they seem like they're going backwards. You know, So there's a clear divide of three haves and two very much have nots in the West. Um, but with the wild cards, you know, you don't have to win the division, right? You have to get into the wild card. You, you're not just competing against the Astros and the Rangers. You're competing against the Yankees, you know, the Blue Jays and the twins and all these other teams. So I don't know if I would say a heightened sense of urgency. Uh, I would say 47 seasons worth of urgency, regardless of what any other team is doing. Hey, just from, I'm curious to get your perspective from the outside as far as Seattle and how it's perceived. Where you know Jerry made it a point to say, you know, basically I'll paraphrase that it takes two to tango. You know, we can talk about, hey, we want to get Otani and we want to get this guy and that guy. Whether they pursue them or not, we'll find out. But it, they need to want to come here. Obviously, is Seattle viewed as man? You still need to overpay to get a big name out here, or has it become a more attractive landing spot? What's your perception of Seattle? I think um, from what I've read, there have been a number of guys who say, not that they won't go to Seattle, certainly, but all the extra travel really, really adds up. You know, you you can dig up the numbers on this, uh, and I'm kind of doing it as we're talking here. Yeah, so this past season, they uh, 49,000 travel miles, which was the second most in baseball behind only Oakland. And when you look at teams in the Central, you know, the Brewers, like 25,000, the Tigers, 26,000. So we're talking about half as much. And I think for a lot of guys that that adds up, you know, I don't think it means, no, we won't sign there, obviously, but there's a flip side to that, right? Because when you look at the biggest name free agent out there this year, who's going to be Otani, sort of feels like not only is Seattle not in the back of the pack, it's maybe at the front of the pack, right? Everybody seems to think he wants to stay on the West Coast. There was a report that said he'd spent time there the last couple of years and liked the city. So this to me is almost a once in a lifetime opportunity where you don't look at the geography of Seattle as a, as a deterrent. You almost look at it as this is an advantage here. Like we might actually have a better shot here than Boston, New York, Chicago, wherever else that's rare. Hey Mike, uh, free agents aside too, what does some of these current Mariners need to do before this next season? I mean, specifically Julio, uh, the Mariners slow start kind of paralleled his slow start and then he turned it on and carried them in August. But what do you see out of a, a young you know, burgeoning superstar like Julio, but one that was very inconsistent this season. I think that's not terribly surprising, given you know his youth and his second time around. I, I cannot say I've got really any concerns about him mm. going forward. You know, he's going to be a superstar. Is he going to win or be in the MVP conversation every single year? I think that's a lot to put on anybody. Uh, I think you could see a parallel with that with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who everybody thought would be this elite superstar. He's been good, but not always great. But as far as is concerns I have about the 2024 and on Mariners, Julio is probably at or near the bottom of the list. 
Um, in addition to whatever outside acquisitions that the front office makes, you know, you need to see some of the guys there step up. And like I said, Crawford did a wonderful job of that. I believe he'll do it again. The name to me that stands out, uh, unsurprisingly, I think, is just Jared Kelnick. You know, like he made all these waves with all the work he did last winter, and it really seemed to pay off. And I know there's a lot made about how the team played better when he was out, which I don't put too much into, but it's not a selling point either. And I think if he can build on the steps he made this year, because as you saw firsthand in previous years, he didn't look like he was a major league hitter. And now he's proven like, no, I'm I'm better than that. I can be productive in this league. The question is the next step, right? Is he going to be an average hitter or is he going to be an above average hitter? Is he going to be part of the next, you know, very good Mariners team? And I think that's still an open question. Hey, one of the other things that Cal Raleigh mentioned in his, his meeting with the media in the clubhouse that night was the trade of, of uh, Paul Seawald and, you know, how that kind of changed the dynamic. He wasn't a fan of it, felt like there were some games that got away that if he were there, they would have won. Um, and that, and I get how indirectly people could look at that as a shot at Josh Rojas and Dom Canzone. What, what was your impression of that trade? Did that, did that trade make sense to you in terms of what they gave up versus what they got back? Or what, what's your view of it now? I was definitely surprised uh, the moment I saw it because, you know, Paul Sewold was essentially found money after he fouled with the Mets and then, you know, very well known. He goes to Seattle and the pitching staff there helps him, you know, resuscitate his career and becomes a star. And it's not like he was no longer productive. And it wasn't also, in my opinion, like the bullpen was so deep that you could lose him and, and not suffer anything from it. And while I agree with you, certainly nothing negative to say, you know, about Rojas or Canzone, neither of those guys looked to me like we must have them this year. These are the guys who are going to push us right into the playoffs. And they were okay. They, they had their moments. You know, I don't, I don't think either one of those guys you could look at and say, well, because we made this trade, this is why we didn't get to the playoffs. That's unfair. But the trade is confusing, you know. And uh, now you have Paul in the playoffs with Arizona. So I can only imagine that at the time he was shocked and maybe devastated. And now here we are a couple months later, and he's still playing, and the Mariners aren't. Yeah, that was uh, it was certainly a tough one there and, and interesting down the stretch. Uh, Mike, what you said about Jared Kellner kind of got me thinking. Do you – Kind of have a comp, anyone that you can think of who has gone through a similar situation, very highly touted prospect under so much scrutiny, slow start to his career, but then does turn it on. I mean, I know we can all think of the failed ones, but is there evidence to say, okay, Jared Kelnick still has some years to figure it out? I'm sure there is. I can't say I have one off the top of my head, but I think the thing that people maybe forget about him is that he's still so young. He's like, what, a year older than Julio Rodriguez Mm -hmm. thereabouts because we've been hearing about him for such a long time, right? The the number six overall pick, and not just by any team, by a New York team, right, back in 2018, and then part of the massive Edwin Diaz trade that got picked apart a million times that he failed and he's back. And the point is we've been talking about him for so long. I think to a lot of people it feels like he's a 30-year-old veteran and he just turned 24 this past summer. So it's way too early to say, you know, he can't do it, he won't do it. And I I think it's the youth that really works in his favor. So do I have a great comp off the top of my head? I don't, but I'm I'm sure you could probably go and look and say, are, are there 24-year-olds highly touted, struggled the first time, to, time through, and then kind of came back and made it work? Absolutely, I'm sure there are. Hey Mike, what what's your impression of Scott Service? As you as you might imagine, when the team fails to make the postseason, the fans are looking. All right, which direction do I point my finger? It's Jerry. It's ownership. It's Scott. He doesn't know baseball. He can't work a bullpen. I've lived in four different cities, man. I hear the same story. Whether it was Dusty Baker in Chicago or Tony Larusa in St. Louis or Socia in in L.A., I've heard it about all of these guys who are legends of, of the game that they don't know what they're doing. That's easy when things don't go right. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious, do you feel like 
he did the best he could with the talent that he had to work with. Do you feel like they underachieved the, and some of that's on him? What's your, give me your, your assessment of Scott's service. Yeah, as we were talking, I went back and I looked at my preseason um, projections and I had the Mariners down uh, as a 90-win team. And they ended up winning 88, which yeah, it's pretty close, right? That's randomness. Uh, and I say that to say I, I'm not sure I have necessarily either like a strong negative or positive impression of him. You know, like that, that is about what the team was built for. Uh, as we mentioned before, the, the offense didn't really seem like it was built to be a – top caliber offense. I mean, you have to, you have to give him a little bit of credit, I think for, you know, JP Crawford improving and some of the other guys improving and managing the pitching staff. But I, I don't necessarily, it's so hard to judge managers, right? Like you can have two managers make the exact same decision that ends poorly. And all of a sudden it was a good choice or a bad choice. Like even just in the playoffs, right? John Schneider gets killed in Toronto for taking out Jose Barrios and then in Philadelphia, Rob Thompson does something similar with Ranger Suarez against the Braves, and because they won, it's a great choice, and it's inspired. And so for me to say that, you know, from a remove, from never having been in the Mariners clubhouse, I can say that he is a, a good or bad, you know, leader of men. It's just so hard to say. But I think the thing we know about managers is that while the most visible part of their job is, you know, pulling the levers, changing pitchers and all that, it's just not nearly as important as, as communication, managing the clubhouse. And that's hard for me to say how good he is at that or not. Hey, Mike, uh, taking a look now uh, at the playoffs and kind of some of these identities of the teams that uh, look like they're going to succeed. It looks like some kind of mirror of the Mariners. So, you know, when you look at the Twins and the, the surge they've been on, they you know took that game against the Astros. What makes, a, what makes a good playoff team compared to a team that's maybe good over the course of the regular season, like the Rays, who then kind of bow out? And do you see a lot of similarities with a Mariners team if they get to the playoffs so they could be successful? You know which teams I picked the other day to go uh, to the World Series? It's the uh, Twins and the Phillies. And I don't think either of those teams are the best teams talent-wise top to bottom, right? Obviously, the the Phillies aren't the Braves, and the Twins aren't the Orioles. And I can tell you the reason I picked those teams is because they have uh, the healthiest and most productive pitching staffs from top to bottom right now. Because if you were to look, especially at the Twins, and you were to say, what's their full season ranking? Like in terms of ERA and, and you know, all this other stuff, they, they might be like middle of the pack. But they made so many changes in season, right? Uh, a lot of names people don't know. You know, Louis Varland, who is an okay starting pitcher, he's now throwing 100 miles an hour out of the bullpen. You know, you look at Phillies or Ryan Kirkering, who is coming up from the minors in the middle of September. Um, top to bottom, they have the best pitching staffs. They've got dangerous offenses, and that's what it is. I mean, the Dodgers and Braves, are they better teams? Yes. Do they have healthy pitching? No. I don't know how you win like that. Are you are you somebody that believes, hey, the big markets in, in the World Series, it's better for baseball, it appeals to a bigger swath of the U.S., if you will, or is it still is baseball still so regional that – yeah, the fans of those teams are going to watch and maybe the casuals are going to tune out regardless if their team's not in it. Do you think there's a, a, a prime matchup in your opinion that, hey, if these two teams get there, this is the best matchup for baseball? I don't know that that matchup exists this year because so many of the big market teams didn't make it, right? There's no New York team. There's no St. Louis team. There's no uh, Chicago or Boston. I mean, the best matchup in terms of ratings this year is probably Braves and Rangers, I guess. Uh, and that's not exactly like a big ticket, you know, Yankees, Cubs kind of thing going on. So this year I say no. Um, I like variety. I, I think it's good for baseball when, you know, you do get these big ticket teams. I, I don't know that anybody will be happy with the, the television ratings if it's like, you know, Diamondbacks and Rangers this year. But yeah. certainly the fan base is there would be pretty happy as well. 
All right, Mike, so what do you think about the actual playoff format? Because here it's come under scrutiny once again with the, the Dodgers and the Braves losing. They all lost last year, but the Astros were fine with it. Do you like the system as it's currently set up because it is still so new, or would you like to see some more tinkering? I think we're one half, not even one half. We're barely half of the way through the second year of this. So to draw any real conclusions I think is premature. I know there's been a lot of talk about the layoffs, um, but when I look at some of the teams, like the Dodgers lost – the first game because Clayton Kershaw's shoulder isn't right. And if he had less time, I don't think that would make it more right. They didn't lose because they had extra time off. And in fact, I was actually just reading a piece at uh, Fangraphs where they dug into this. And basically what they said was uh, they found every game, every matchup in playoff history where one side had a layoff of at least four days and the other side had a layoff of no more than two. There were 35 games and the team with more rest went 24 and 11. So for us to sit here and now and say, Oh, well it's, it's the layoffs. That's why the Braves lost to the Phillies. It's like, well, no, at this point in the season, the Braves and the Phillies are very evenly matched. I don't care what the regular season records are. They just don't matter. For one of those teams to beat the other in one game, that's totally reasonable. It's, it's baseball. I don't think there is a way to get to a perfect outcome every year of the best team will win the World Series. Because if you want to do that, just give it to the team that won the most regular season games and don't play a postseason. But I don't think that's what anybody wants either. Hey, do you do you have a pretty strong sense of the MVPs for this season? It feels like Otani's everybody's pick in the American League for the most part, but the National League could be Mookie Betts, could be Acuna Jr. Who, what, how do you see it playing out? I think it's going to be Acuna by a lot. I think uh, at the end of August, when Betts had an amazing August, right, uh, the, the narrative allowed him to draw a little bit more, uh, you know, almost even, I would say, because he was outperforming Acuna uh, in terms of OPS and in wins above replacement. Uh, which is wild because Acuna had a great season. And then Acuna kept performing in September. Betts didn't really have a great September. And now the, the argument's just not quite there because in order to overcome 40-70 in people's minds, I think you would really need to have had a compelling case of, no, look, he actually did hit better. He was more valuable, and that just isn't there anymore. So I, I think people now will be surprised by how large of a lead Acuna has. He might actually win it unanimously, I think. Hey, Mike, uh, one more from me here. Speaking of the the new rules and the base stealing again, just kind of brought this to my mind. We haven't really seen a major impact in terms of, well, the pitch clock has drastically affected players. You know, they're they're panicking, they're upset with it. But base stealing, it seems like, has had a big impact on these new rules. Do you feel like that's going to be something that really changes moving forward? I think what's going to happen, uh, to go back to Acuna for a second, you know, he stole all these bases, and a lot of people were saying, well, it's because of the rules, and you can't compare it to previous years, and you know, nobody went 40-70 because nobody played under these rules, which is totally true. And then the other side of that was, well, yeah, but it's not like there were 15 guys stealing 70 bases this year. You know, He was the one who did it. And I think his advantage, more than anything, uh, was the first mover advantage. What I mean by that is he was just willing to do it right? He's fast, but he's not the fastest. He's a good base stealer, but he's not the best base stealer. You know, Trey Turner didn't get caught once all year, right? And I think what's going to happen next year is that there's going to be a whole year of evidence and data on this. And teams are going to look at, a, you know, a guy like Acuna and say, well, listen, if he's going this often, why why is he the only one? Why isn't our guy doing this too? And I think that's what's going to happen is you're going to see the uh, attempt rate go up next year. Because you had teams like the Mets who had like a 90% stolen base success rate, which is too high. That means you're not stealing enough. Trey Turner should not be perfect for the year. It means he's not stealing enough. And I think that's what you're going to happen next next year. More aggressiveness. Mike Petriello of MLB Network has been our guest here with Wyman and Bob talking some baseball. Mike, thanks so much. We always appreciate the time. Enjoy the postseason, and hopefully we're 
We're talking to you again about the Mariners going to the postseason. That'd be a fun I sure hope so. I can't <laughs> wait, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Thank you. I'm not having it with the too-much-rest-is-hurting teams crowd. The Dodgers had huge pitching problems heading in. The Braves with a bit as well. Tampa completely took their foot off the gas in the final week, and that was a choice. While I wouldn't mind seeing some off days taken away and time between series shortened, you know, more like resembling the regular season, I don't think actual format changes are needed. Moving on. Tuesday morning, we got back to the press conference comments as Brock and Salk took a closer look at sustainability and tried to determine exactly what that looks like. We are ranked coming up in 15 minutes. Do you believe in sustainability? That, that I think, is ultimately where some of this debate is going to come down on. And, look, you can argue about Jerry's choice of words and whether he meant to say it the way he did and some of his apology, et cetera, about the 54%. And, you know, Brock, you and I didn't get much of a chance to talk. You were out Friday. I was out yesterday. So this is really kind of the first time we've been together since the Jerry interview on Thursday. And, you know, I think I kind of give him a B. I thought he handled it pretty well. He kind of said what he needed to say. He sounded mostly genuine about all of that. Mm -hmm. And yet there still seemed to be uh, some frustration left over. And I think some of that has to do with the idea of sustainability. And there are a group of people out there that don't agree with the concept, forgetting about whether or not he misspoke when he said 54% was, you know, the goal. Mm -hmm. Jerry told us straight up, that's not the goal. That is the baseline. And we're trying to be, you know, make that the absolute bottom and do better than 54% of our win, uh, win total every year. But there's a, there's the second idea is because that Jerry is not backing off of at all, which is we are trying to, to create a sustainable winner a team that will put out a good product every year, be in the mix every season, and that that's the best way to win a title. Can I hear that Ken Rosenthal again? Because that is yes. kind of the other side of that. He pendulum. does not agree with that. And by the way, Evan Drelk was on last week with Bump and Stacy. He kind of said the same thing of like, yeah, I, he doesn't believe in the sustainability either. He wants to see more teams kind of jumping all in, as we saw a couple of teams do this offseason. Here is Ken Rosenthal from Fox. It seems to me too many teams take the easy path, occupy their sustainability fetish, and don't really take the necessary steps toward that final goal. And we all know, guys, the postseason is a crapshoot. And there is a randomness, a luck involved. You get hot, you're not, whatever. But what do fans want? I go back to Evan's column the other day. This is entertainment, man. This is drama. This is what people pay for. They pay to see their teams try as hard as they possibly can. What do fans want? I mean, it's a good question because he says it right there. I know that the postseason is a bit random and a bit lucky. Mm -hmm. But fans want to see you go for it. Mm -hmm. Do they want to see you go for it or do they want to see you win it? I, I think they want to see you do whatever it takes. But they want to see you win it, right? For sure. For sure. They, they, and, and they want to see you willing to do whatever it takes to go win it, whether that's at the trade deadline, whether that's in the offseason, whether that is drafting the right people, what, what, whatever that is. But that comes in retrospect, right? You, you want to see your team do whatever it takes to win after you lose. You say, well, I can't believe they didn't take steps A, B, C, or D. Mm -hmm. If you don't take those four steps, but then you still win the World Series, nobody comes back and says, oh, I don't really like the way they built it. I wish they had tried harder. They say it worked out. You went to the World Series and you won. So, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's, not much, I, it's much easier in the other sports to define this. 
I think that's some of the challenge in we in you know this conversation too, and, and for the narrative for the Mariners, because it's much easier to see like, oh yeah, 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 the Rams they were all in. I mean, they went for it. They traded every pick imaginable, right. and they paid Stafford, and they paid Donald, and they paid Ramsey, and that that you knew was not sustainable. When you trade all your picks and you max out your credit cards, like, yeah, you know, so your your salary cap's done. Like, okay, they're clearly all in, <laughs> right? Their hand, they play their hand, and you can easily and everybody diagnose and define that. What is all in in baseball? What you know? What 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 does that mean? What does sustainability mean? You can't trade draft picks in baseball, right? Mm-hmm. You could do it in the you NBA. Can trade young players. You could trade young players, but you do that in the NBA. You do it in the NFL, but you don't do it with your draft. Right. You do it near the trade deadline with your young players, or in the offseason with your young players. But now even that element has become so much more difficult because there's so many more teams in the playoffs now, mm-hmm. so many hang around so much longer now. As Aaron Goldsmith said to us yesterday, the one thing he continues to learn about baseball is that there's always time, right? There's not this doomsday, the world is falling, the sky is in, and you're just done done in April or May. You know, there's largely always time for So let me come back, to, let me come back then to the same question. Do you believe in the idea of sustainability in baseball? Do you believe that that is a good pathway to winning worlds? Is that a, 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 good, a good model? to win a World Series? I, uh, right alongside that, to me, I define sustainability as draft and develop. Do I believe that drafting and develop is still the best path? That your homegrown talent, that nobody washes the car like the owner, that having that I was born and I was raised and I was developed within this organization, I do think is the healthiest long-term way to build your business. Mm-hmm. When I hear sustainability, I just, in my mind, I think like a lot of people, goes to budget and dollars and cents. And it just goes to the S is like that dollar sign, right? Like, oh, sustainable, sustainable. Right. We got to stay within budget. Uh, we can't overspend. We got to stay within our means. We got to, I think w- to me, like they're two different paths, right? I want to build my team by drafting and developing, right? And then you want to uh, augment your team wanna, yes. by adding to it at, at the all, right time. Yes. And realizing though that, that that augmentation, unlike a salary cap driven league, that augmentation is, hey man, when it's there and whatever is there, like we go for it. Mm-hmm. That is, and I don't know what Mr. Larson and Mr. Stanton paid for the Mariners when they bought in, <laughs> you know, versus the valuation now. It's like, you know, kind of like your home, like, hey man, Peg and Mike bought that home for $25,000, you know, and some 30 years later, guess what? There is an immense amount of equity. Hey, guess what, ownership group? Like, yeah, your bottom line budget today is is X, but you know, you've got, I don't know, billions that you have made in equity that you know is there the day that you decide to sell or move on or what have you. So to hear this, and I think when Passon talks about this or Rosenthal talks about it or boy, howdy, God bless him, talks about it, that's always in their background. Like anybody crying poor? Yeah. Anybody thinking see, that don't, they don't, I don't have think, the I means? don't see this as being a money thing. I'm not even talking about money. Quite frankly, I haven't even really given an opinion. I've just asked you what you think about sustainability. I don't hear any talk about money there. Like, it's interesting to me that that's where people have gone with it. When I hear sustainability, I think of the Cardinals. I think of a team that understands some of the randomness of the postseason in baseball and has said over the course of really the last 20 years, we want to be in it every year Mm -hmm. or nearly every year. And the Cardinals have probably done that as well as anybody. And along the way, they've picked up a bunch of World Series appearances, 
couple of wins. And what do they do? And what do they do as much as anybody else? Homegrown. Homegrown? They're, 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 they're known for it. I mean, yeah. that's what they're absolutely famous for. And they had a couple of big studs, obviously, and in mm-hmm. holes right in the middle of it, and a couple of big-time pitchers. But they they always sort of stayed measured mm-hmm. in terms of how much they went all in in terms of dealing away young players because they always trusted their development system to continue yep. to, to turn add and turn out all of the types of players that they've had. I, I When I see Jerry, I think that's what he's talking about is he wants to build a franchise that is akin to the Cardinals that are considered to be one of the best in the game. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means in terms of budget. I mean, the Cardinals spend, but they don't go over the top. And I think that's kind of where the Mariners want to be in terms of budget. I just, I don't, I don't see this as a budget conversation. I see it as how do you give your team the best shot to win a World Series? All I care about is winning the World Series. Mm-hmm. I don't care how you do it. I don't care how much you spend to do it. All I care about is winning the World Series. And when I watch the Dodgers get spanked and lose their first two games here, and we'll see what happens. Maybe they come back. Um, and, and, and not for the first time. And we've seen some of this happen in baseball. And we watch the Padres not make the playoffs. And you watch the Mets go down in flames this year. Yep. Right? And the Yankees and some of the other teams. I, I, I understand why there is a, a desire for a sustainable product that gives you a shot at it year after year in a sport that has a lot of luck involved. Okay, so then why do we have some of the inks from some of the personnel? Why are we hearing from, you know, this isn't just fans. And and I bet you, Salky, if we had a town hall with 100 Mm -hmm. great Mariners fans, right? If we went out and kind of like jury selection, like, hey, no, you're all in. Like, you've been invested. Like, you've poured your resources and you know the game and you know enough about it. I, I, you know, if we had that town hall, I think a huge chunk of them would say, listen, I love the drafting and developing. Well, there's an easy answer to this question, Brock. And this is where I think I'm going to come back and agree with a lot of folks who have been angry. Because as Brittany in the 206 says, because the Cardinals also go out and know when to go get a star. That's right. Right? Because of the Paul Goldschmidt deal or the Nolan Arenado deal or whatever, or the Jim Edmonds deal. Yes. They have always augmented what they've built internally with something that they've acquired externally. Now, if you were the Mariners, you're probably sitting here saying, yeah, that's Luis Castillo. Right? I mean, like they, they would make an argument that they've gone and done some of that. And I think the appropriate response back is, cool, you need to do more. You just need to do more. That's right. Lu- Luis isn't good enough. That's one. You need to do more. That's right. You, you've you've built a, a good base yep. and you you have a system that is going to be churning out talent for the foreseeable future. Robbie Ray, Luis Castillo, those are those are absolutely good. Yep. You know, Big and, and no one's looking for. Well, at least I'm not anyway. I'm not looking for them to go insane. I don't want them to be the Padres. I don't think that's a good, sustainable way to build a winner. Yep. But I do think you've got to add around what you've done and augment with a couple of yeah. other investments. And nine, and nine years in now, there's no more patience. Nine years in, you've had every chance to draft everything that you wanted to do, to develop all that you've wanted to do. And that is why patience is done. You cannot use that word patient anymore. You can't use the word young anymore. You're not. You're four or five years past your even rebuild time. So any of that patient stuff and patience is the key and patience is the is the way to winning. Like, no, no, that that worked then. But that's over. It's we're through with that word, mm-hmm. and now it is next step. Now it's next step, and then there's going to be have to be, a, I think, a sizable step this offseason. I think some equity, unfortunately, was lost. It was lost. Yeah, and not just on you and me or fan base, on your players, on your stars, 
on your studs, on your captains, on your voices, right? And it's one thing for Jared Kilnick to like John Boy stuff, and then and Dylan Moore to like John Boy stuff, and you know some of the other. But these are your two, like JP and, and Cal. That's your leadership, man. That's your battery. That is your. Gr- those are your dudes. And when they are asking for more, and they're done with the patient, and they're done with the, uh, yeah, that's all good. I mean, we built it all up. Now, sustainability means for this crew, take the step. Take the next step. And, you know, just some kind of, well, a flyer here, and, you know, this is a good platoon there. And, you know, this guy's we're going to take a little risk here, and we're going to take, you know, maybe some volume plays on some smaller price stuff here. Nope, I need a star. Yeah, I have a tendency to go back to what you said, Brock, and what you've said for a long, long time, which is you can't fool a clubhouse. You can't fool a locker room. Nope. And whether I buy in or you buy in or the public buys in, if they don't get the buy-in from the players in the clubhouse, it doesn't really matter. Nope. And I, I don't know how this goes. I don't know what the conversations are this offseason between the organization and Cal or JP or whomever else. But you got to make sure that those guys are fully on board because you, you can't fool a locker room. You nope. can't fool a clubhouse. You know what it reminds me of? For some reason, I don't know why, this conversation, maybe because for 10 years, Boy Howdy would always interject and didn't have a strong opinion about it. still does in some of his social media realms. It reminds me of the Seahawks a few years ago when there were still some of these pieces. And the Mariners, I think, are even in a better place than the Seahawks were then mm-hmm. with a group that was getting a little older and the Bennetts and the Averills were kind of getting a little older and Russ is losing a little bit of his uh, fastball. And remember that offseason where they had all this cap space? And we're like, okay, here it is. Go get two stars. Go get two stars. Go get Jack right. Conklin. You have the money and the resources now. You've saved this up, and maybe the Bennetts and the Averills were done, and some of those moves were made. Like, okay, we've got whatever it was, a pretty significant chunk of budget. Go get me two stars. And instead, they took a lot of bites at the apple mm-hmm. and brought like three, four very average offensive but John, linemen. But, John, I mean, say what you will. John's view is also sustainability, yes, right? Yes, it is. I mean, like, John's view has always been give yourself as many bites at the apple as you yep. can get. Yep. Don't get yourself into long-term trouble because there's enough randomness in the playoffs that you, you can't build it all oh, for and injury, one and lucky And the NFL moment. is all about injuries. You've got to have a roster. You've got to have depth, and he's yeah. going to yell back to there, you. Like, there, is some, there is some of the other side kind of coming through here. Uh, 360, Robbie Ray equals Carlos Rodon. They have done some of that. Here's another one. Jesus, Teo was a star in Toronto. No, Winker, Castillo, Robbie, you act like they they don't try. They do. Some just don't pan out. Uh, there's a couple others here as well. I mean, I, I, I do understand some of that vibe. Yep. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And if at some point your clubhouse is telling you that you're not doing it enough, then you probably need to tweak a little bit of what you're doing. And I don't yep. think they need to turn themselves into the Padres. Nope. I don't think that's a good model for nope. the Mariners. Nope. But you're probably going to need to course correct a little bit in order to keep your clubhouse from from mutiny. Because that, that is a Mm-mm. that's a non-starter. Mm-hmm. That's well, an absolute what stood non-starter. Out to Shannon when she joined us Friday was that Cal specifically said they need like veteran guys who've been there done yep. that right. She said she thought being around the team that Cal and JP and those guys had kind of stepped into that leadership role and maybe they didn't need that. But it's a big deal if they're asking for it and they feel like that's still a void. Absolutely true. So we'll see. It's going to be a very big offseason for the Mariners, obviously. It gets going as soon as the postseason ends. we still got a couple more weeks of that. But this is going to be uh, very, very, very important. And as I said on, on Friday, Brock, look, I was 100 percent and still am for last year. Nobody should be even considering Jerry DePoto or Scott Service's job. They are and have done enough to deserve a little bit of grace. I think that's pro- they've probably used that up. 
And so heading into next year, another slow start. If the season doesn't go the way it's supposed to, mm-hmm. there's a lot more pressure on those guys yep. this year. And I'm not calling yep. for anybody's head, nope. but I think that they've used up some of the good grace that they had earned through the first previous years uh, before that. All right, let's do some ranking. Let's do some ranking indeed. Now, for that, you have to go to the Brock and Salk podcast page. Salk does end on a very important point here, the importance of buy-in from the clubhouse. It's extremely important, and I hope it doesn't go overlooked. I know they've had some of these conversations of what they're trying to do with individuals and groups in past off-seasons. They definitely need to do it this winter. Speaking of this winter, are you ready for some hot stovish talk? Seattle Sports isn't just on air. It's online as well at seattlesports.com. We're going to visit with the writers from time to time, and this week was a perfect time to catch up with Brandon Gustafson, who had a number of Mariners posts. Two in particular, one that looks ahead and one that looks back caught my eye. Well, Brandon, great to have you in. Uh, You had a couple of articles this week that I think are of interest uh, every Every article you write about the Mariners, of course, is of interest, but a couple that jumped out in particular, I guess, of interest to me and how I can use on this. Yeah. Uh, we'll be honest here. But first of all, uh, give everybody a little bit of a background of who you are. Yeah, so Brandon Gustafson, I've been working for SeattleSports.com. I uh, used to be 710Sports.com when I first started for almost four years now, which is crazy, and half of that was wiped out essentially by a worldwide pandemic where I Here's worked the from new home. guy. Where'd he go? Yeah, Where'd we all go? Yeah, I worked for three months before <laughs> I got sent home for two years, which was weird. But yeah, I grew up in the area, UW alum. Uh, before uh, going to UW for two years, I was at Shoreline Community College for two years playing baseball still. Uh, I know people around here know Blake Snell very fondly. His dad was my pitching coach. His twin brother was a teammate of mine also. So um, that, that that's always something that I like to personally highlight as as a something fun that stands out but yeah I've been a baseball guy my whole life obviously love love my Huskies love the Seahawks and everything and that's kind of how it ended up uh, getting here and you're wearing a release the Kraken shirt and uh looks like Sandlot hat today. No, it's uh that's it's my golden retriever Bow Wow hat. So oh. uh, uh, for people that follow me on Twitter, they've probably seen my golden retriever puppy <laughs> Maverick plenty of times. So Yes, don't go to Brandon for baseball, go to him for the golden retriever. Absolutely. <laughs> no, there is definitely both and when you can combine them and put them on a hat, hey, what's better than that? <laughs> exactly. Uh, two spots or two um, posts this week that really jumped out at me. And the first was, you know, we're not wasting any time. We're no. getting right into this absolutely. off season. We are not messing around because this is going to be an absolutely critical, absolutely critical no off doubt. season uh, for this team. And one, you kind of you jumped ahead and you're like, okay, let's let's look at who they could be possibly looking at, who's available out there. And you had a, a primer with some key dates and some p- key key players to keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you know, obviously, any time that you talk about this off season, it's Shohei Otani and Mariners fans dating back to when Otani first got posted and ended up joining Major League Baseball to now have been wanting this guy on their team for six seven years so he's finally going to be hitting the free agent market but plenty of other intrigue too it's it's not the deepest or best free agent class on the hitting side I think I've heard that, that's that somewhere clear. Yeah, yeah right yeah especially compared to the last few years where you had all these star shortstops and Aaron Judge and Brandon Nemo and those guys but Still some some good guys at the top end. Cody Bellinger had an awesome bounce back year after just three terrible years, frankly, with the Dodgers. A few other all-stars, Matt Chapman. Uh, Reese Hoskins is another interesting guy. Didn't play this year, but has been an unbelievable first baseman for the Philadelphia Phillies. Lourdes Gurriel, an all-star with the Diamondbacks this year. And then, you know, you kind of get to the more veteran guys. J.D. Martinez, Justin Turner on the hitting end. 
And then you look at the pitching and whether the Mariners are going to end up being interested in that is going to be dependent on what they do in the trade market because they have their five guys coming back. But guys like Blake Snell, Aaron Nola, Eduardo Rodriguez, Sonny Gray are all hitting the open market too. So it's a, it's kind of, it's a, it's not quite as much of a buyer's market probably as it was the last two years as far as what the Mariners need, which is obviously hitting was the big problem for Mm -hmm. them this year. Um, but then there's the trade market. You never know if a Juan Soto is going to be available. Pete Alonso, because who knows what the Mets want to do after highest payroll in MLB history this past season to now kind of tearing down. They traded all their guys, essentially, besides Alonso and Lindor at the deadline. So, I mean, they have the trade chips. I know you and I have talked about it. Sounds like they might be more willing to trade their prospects. If that's the case, there might be some talent out there in the trade market to go and upgrade this lineup. Yeah, there could be. And that was one of the things that when they had the end of the year press conference, something that really kind of went under the radar because everything else was so explosive. (laughs) There were little nuances and little nuggets in there that really uh, jumped out and I think are important. Uh, But they did say that they, you know, Justin Hollander said we are not um, resource poor or something along those lines and uh, also and then jerry depoto did indicate didn't even indicate he said that yeah we we're not afraid to trade prospects now what they're not going to do is wipe out the whole system for sure but they are willing to dip into the prospect field which was something they were not willing to do at the deadline and that actually had me a little bit alarmed at the time so for him to say that at the time was a relief for me because at the very least uh, you might need to have a package of prospects to get something you need. You might need to use a prospect to enhance a package that includes a major leaguer to get what you need. Yeah, and I think that that's where this past draft is going to maybe especially come to fruition. Having three picks in the top 30, mm-hmm. I think, could absolutely impact that because whether it's, hey, we have this guy so we feel comfortable trading someone we've had for longer or just somebody came up. I mean, Ty P and Colt Emerson were unbelievable during the Modesto Nuts playoff run in the second half of the year they were just key pivotal parts Colt Emerson was maybe the best hitter of this class that was drafted in terms of guys that went and played right away maybe you do capitalize on that because he he he's a big name you know him well but you also had those three high picks where you were able to kind of boost up the system a little bit better because I think part of the reservation with it was the trade they did for Luis Castillo you're trading two top 50 top 75 prospect shortstops and those were at the time like head over heels your best hitting prospects now with Harry Ford the three guys that you just drafted this year Cole Young you do have a little bit more depth there than they had this time last year and and this this past draft was absolutely a big reason why that's the case it was and there was a little bit of kind of duplicating in positions too you you have kind of you've stockpiled and it was in middle infield where you didn't have that before so it almost seemed like the minute they had that draft it's like oh you might be trading from this Cole Young shortstop Colt Emerson, shortstop, Ty right. Pete, shortstop, Johnny Farmello, outfielder, former shortstop, funny enough, <laughs> in high school. I mean, it was very clear they were going for left-handed, up-the-middle talent with these high picks these right. last two years. Right. It'll be interesting to see if that comes into play um, and interesting to see kind of who's hands-on and who's hands-off. Is there a prospect you would not touch right now in the system? Cole Young was so good this year, and I think that with with Cole Young, it seemed like he was another guy, almost like Harry Ford in a way, where it seemed like, man, this guy just has a very steady presence about him in terms of just like, I can see that guy being a big leaguer. I see the floor mm-hmm. more so than the three guys that they drafted. I think we're ceiling guys, but I mean, the, the numbers he put up between Modesto and Everett this year were really, really fascinating. And I think that the power kind of ticked up maybe a little bit faster than people thought. Just again, an up the middle guy, 
second base long term, you don't really know what that's going to look like. You know JP's going to be here for a while. Just having someone, I think, like him, he he would be pretty hard to part with. But at the same time, just with the talent that may or may not be out there, you you might need to get a little, uh, what was it Jeff Patson said, uncomfortable, right? That's right. kind of how he described this offseason for the Mariners. Maybe you have to wade into waters that you normally wouldn't wade into. You know, it's funny. We talk about getting uncomfortable, and I have always been I've, I've been hands-off prospects. I love, I fell in love with the of prospects. Course. And not quite as much, although there are one or two right now. And I think we were kind of conditioned to do that because it was all about the future. And we learned so much more. You know, while the Mariners were struggling, you were so looking ahead to what was coming. So we learned so much more about them than we ever knew before. And it, you would, you know, say that, hey, it's really going to hurt if you're going to trade a Noel V. Marte. But when it was Luis Castillo, you were looking at on the other side. That didn't hurt as much at the time. It hurt when you thought about it, not knowing who the other player would be ahead of time. But when it actually happened, it didn't. Still could hurt a little bit. No, Elvie's going to be a fine player. But it was kind of an exercise, and sometimes I think – I personally hang on a little too much to that. Yeah, and that, and I think that's one of the harder parts, especially for a team that is still, you know, they're not coming out of the rebuild, but that the rebuild wasn't that long ago. And we're seeing the fruits of the rebuild come into fruition, especially with a guy like Julio, who, I mean, I, I think about when trade rumors are swirling with all these guys, and there were people that were trying to say the Royals wanted Julio for Whit Merrifield. When they were, and it's like, <laughs> okay, well, no, but then you bring up Noel V and Edwin Arroyo for someone like Luis Castillo. Absolutely, yes. But yeah, I I think that you do kind of fall in love with the prospects and who they may or may not be. I know for me personally, I live up in Muckleteo. I grew up going to Everett Aqua Sox games. I go to usually two or three a year. I saw Julio with the Aqua Sox. I saw Noelvi with the Aqua Sox. I mean, I saw Mike Zanino's pro debut, right? Mm -hmm. So you kind of, I think with a lot of local people between Everett and Tacoma, you fall in love with those guys because you want to be the person that's like, I saw them when they were here also. And I want to see them be that guy that flourishes with my team. Yeah, there there is definitely a connection there, but there's a bigger picture, uh, regardless of how big oh, a part of that picture oh, they are, sure. and and everything is is pretty much movable. Okay, <laughs> second article, and this one is a, a little bit of a newer article for you, taking a look at the two Texases. Yeah, and what can be learned from the two Texases who yeah. just so happen to be. In the ALCS. Astros, seventh year in a row. The Rangers go from 68 wins to 90. And and we're, I mean, I think they've outscored their opponents 32 to 12 in five playoff games. Have just absolutely gone bazonkers at the the plate. But, I mean, a a big part of it, we've talked about payroll so much the last few years. And especially on the hitting side because, um, I mean, A.J. Pollock, one year, $7 million or whatever it was last year, is the biggest free agent contract that this front office has handed out to a hitter since taking over in late 2015. You look at payrolls and whatnot, and it's not always a direct correlation to success. The top three payrolls this year, New York Mets, New York Yankees, San Diego Padres, they all missed the playoffs, all had you know total failure years for what they were anticipating this season. But Three of the four teams that are going to be in the championship series were top 10 payroll. Texas, four. Houston, seven. Whoever wins this Braves, uh, th- this uh, you know, Braves-Phillies uh, matchup, they're going to be in the top 10 in payroll as well. 
Mariners were 18th. They were 30 million below the league average, according to Spotrack. So, I mean, even if you're just getting closer to that that league average mark, it's very clear that it, that having that kind of ability to add to your lineup in a more meaningful way is going to do big things for this team that has a good core in place between the starting pitching, your up the middle talent. You feel so great about your three up the middle guys between Julio, Cal, and JP. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I mean, just the, those two teams have done such a great job not just going out there and adding those big pieces, but developing on top of that. The Mariners have done their part on the on the developing standpoint, but at the same time, you do need to go in and add from the outside and get those guys on top in the middle of your lineup and to help drive this thing forward because 88-90 wins every year, as we've seen, it's it's a little harder to cut it and get, and get to where you want to go that way. Yeah, and one of the kind of learnings I had from that, in 88-90, I, I don't, no is enough. It was enough last year. It wasn't enough this year. It wasn't enough in 21. What's it going to be yeah. next year? wasn't enough in 21. Exactly. And so what hurts is you're that close. Yeah, and, it, the, and the Astros were banged up really bad at the beginning of this year. Lost a lot of starting pitching along the way, too. Mm-hmm. Texas started red hot cooled off didn't even you know they they kind of limped into the playoffs they didn't they weren't very good yeah, in august or fired September. fired right back up exactly and then just totally took things over so i mean if you're thinking oh well they were in eight they were both 90 win teams this year it's like well you know look at the kind of stretches that they went on look at the guys they did and didn't have for these stretches jacob Degrom missed basically the whole season for texas if he's back next year for even a little bit of a stretch that's a game changer max scherzer for all of next year absolute game changer 88 90 again like you said that might not be enough next season and kind of another learning that i had from watching what they did is we didn't really know what texas ever was during the season (laughs) Or, or maybe we did and we were refusing to accept what they were it's we had conversations about it all the time are you in or are you out are you buying what they're doing or are you not right um that happened quite a bit over at the stadium before or after and sometimes during games and <laughs> uh, along those lines and then houston uh, i think there's not going to be a big fall off there no. hasn't been a big fall off but it looked like you know they were very vulnerable because of the injuries that they had and sometimes that is i think a lot of what we saw with them was fatigue at the beginning of the year and this so is, many games <laughs> For so many years, and this is something that they actually plan for. They know that they play more, and even doing one week extra last year, I felt it. Yeah. And and I think, you know, the Mariners did too. So you have to be ready for that going into, you know, you had a part about playoff experience is important, and I think you were talking about individuals on a team or a team, but also uh, understanding what that is and what that means to the season that you're in and the season that you're moving into after that. And, you know, one of the things I'm not going to bring, I'm going to break it out on a later show and something (laughs) that I would like to um, see. But um, one of the things that I kind of learned in watching those two teams this year is regular season doesn't really mean a lot. And and we say that all the time. You Mm -hmm. just have to get in. Get to the dance. But when you look at it, I think the Astros were in first place like 19 days out of the entire season. It was almost all in September. And, you know, the rest of the time was like 90% the Rangers. The Mariners were there for a short amount of time. And the point being, those two teams were different teams once the postseason started or actually rolling into the postseason. They were both, you know, Texas um, had a little bit of a struggle against the Mariners, but were able to turn the page very quickly. Houston played strong going into the postseason, but they got to their best in time. 
Yeah. Doesn't matter what they did before that. And if you can get to your best. And they made some improvements along the way, too, mm-hmm. particularly Texas and some additions that they made. Some didn't work out at all, and they're going to pay a lot of money for that. Right. But others did. Yeah. I mean, it, when your best players need to play at their best in October, and I think that these two teams are prime examples of that because Corey Seager's been the best player on the planet for the last week and a half, two weeks. Jordan Alvarez almost single-handedly destroyed the Minnesota Twins pitching staff, right. something that Mariner fans are all too familiar with, unfortunately. So that's that's another big part of it, too. But, yeah, leading into the next season, I mean, I know that in particular, I think you're talking about the pitching end and, and just the workload that comes with that, how, how, you, how you alter that or in, that impacts your spring training. I mean, those are things that you don't really think about in the moment. But, again, this is an Astros team. This is their seventh ALCS in a row. They're playing into mid to late October for the seventh year in a row. If they win the pennant this year, it's their fifth pennant in those seven years. Mm-hmm. That's a lot, a lot of innings, a lot of extra games for these guys. And more than anybody in baseball over the last decade, they found just all the ability to be able to kind of compartmentalize that and build it over into the next year and not have it impact them too much. And when it has impacted them, especially on like the starting pitching injury side, mm-hmm. they just kind of keep on trucking. It's unbelievable. They did. And it was funny because they keep calling up starting pitchers and we're like, who's that guy? Well, he did enough. And some were doing it <laughs> with smoke and mirrors, but they did enough uh, to, to carry them through. And the one thing that struck me about watching them and the two teams couldn't have been different throughout the year or what was around them um, the Astros, I never sensed any panic yeah. with the team, around the team, outside the team. I mean, they lost, you know, th- this was not nothing near a regular season yeah. Astros team that we've seen. They looked vulnerable. They didn't feel vulnerable. They weren't worried about it in the least. It was very much like a been there, done that. We'll figure it out because we always do. I yeah. mean, and and that that's what just being in the postseason that much with all that experience does. And I think that. You know, they just went out and handled business against a really kind of chippy Twins team. I, the, we've talked about it. The Mariners and Twins, very similar in their offensive profile. A lot of Ks, but they gave the Astros a little bit of fits early in that series. But the Astros pitching just put them away, strikeout after strikeout after strikeout. It's just nothing phases them, and and for good reason. They have every reason to think that way because of just all the experience that those core guys have year in, year out, playing yep. dozens of playoff games every single year. It's a heck of a difference, and, and and that's something that, unfortunately, the Mariners don't have. They they have a few guys that got that experience last season, but really, outside of that, I mean, it's, what, five five games that they have. That That's just night and day difference between these guys that are almost and pushing I 100. That's one of the things that they were. Well, yeah, 100. We were talking with Steve Sparks, the broadcaster, and 100. it's like he's like, we've broadcasted 90, I think it was 91 post, postseason games. 91. Wow. We've Yeah. <laughs> Altuve, I think, is second in MLB history in playoff home runs behind Manny Ramirez. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's, like okay. That was like three full months of playoff games, and the Mariners have a week. Yeah, five days, <laughs> you know, five games. It. Work week, that's it. <laughs> so that was that was very eye-opening right there. Uh, the only other thing I would say is not just turn it up in October. you got to have it turned up in September Oh, absolutely. Well. you yeah, got to have mean, it turned up in September. That was, I mean, especially after just how great August was, and you mm-hmm. can look at the schedule and everything, but, yeah, 11 and 17 in September. September to where October 1st didn't even matter. You, They had it all in their hands at, at, at multiple points, even when it kind of hit their lowest point at that Texas series where they got swept. They still had ample opportunity over those last seven games it was and, yep. and just were not able to capitalize. We're not able to. All right, Brandon, appreciate this. We will do this throughout the not-so-off season. That's right. Not-so-off season indeed. <laughs> That was my coworker Brandon Gustafson, whose work covering all Seattle sports can be found on seattlesports.com. 
All right, last but not least, Wyman and Bob's weekly visit with MLB Network's John Morosi. This time last year, JP and I were standing in a tunnel waiting to do postseason walk-off interviews. This year, he's on his own, unfortunately, and that, of course, is unfortunately for me. He's having a blast covering the postseason. As always, he took time out of his incredibly busy schedule to share his thoughts on the Mariners with Wyman and Bob. He hits on a number of topics, including a need we both see for the Mariners that I don't think a lot of people are thinking about. He shares a name or two he'd like to see Jerry DePoto go after and starts with an interesting topic, how the Mariners stack up against the Texas teams next year, not just in the regular season, but in the postseason as well. They are two different beasts. Here's that interview. You know, it's a great question because obviously it was one game away. And, and where was that one game that obviously went went against the Mariners that could have put them into the postseason? Texas, I still think you look at their lineup one through nine, they are a more complete lineup than what the Mariners have. And that to me was, was a question that I would have for the Mariners entering the postseason, which would be how much better are you going to be in the future against high-end pitching than you were a year ago, where I think most notably you looked at Game 3 and how it unfolded, the all those scoreless innings and, and the adjustments that you needed to make to your roster that, candidly, the Mariners are still working on. So I, I think it, it's a reminder to the Mariners that they are close, but also that they they need to take this opportunity to reimagine how their lineup would look in a, in a postseason series. Because... I look at the Baltimore Orioles, for example, and a team that I think had one of the better and more diversified lineups in the sport, but was a little susceptible to the layoff and then to some power pitching from Texas. And how do you make sure that you have some more Michael Brantley types in your lineup to help you weather the storm during a postseason series? That, to me, is the big question the Mariners have to confront. Uh, it, It is a reminder that they're pretty close, but take this as an opportunity to realize that you weren't good enough this year and that that should prompt some serious introspection and some really substantive and, dare I say, splashy moves from the Mariners this offseason. You know, I think it's more palatable for uh, Mariner fans this year to to maybe root for the, the Rangers. That's that's okay. The Astros, though, I think, were they 9-4, JP, against uh, the right. Rangers, I think, this right. year? So they've kind of they've kind of owned them a little bit. And, you know, we're just looking at Jordan Alvarez. My gosh, that guy's a monster. Um, what do you, what do you think about, uh, that, that whole matchup there? And like, what are the, what are the weaknesses and the strengths from each? Well, team? for me, it's, it's difficult to pick against Houston because we have seen it so many times with their, with their lineup in the postseason, whether it was last year against Seattle or just any time during their streak of seven straight ALCS appearances at this time of year. And it's been a lot of the same names. Brantley has been on multiple teams. Alvarez has been on multiple teams. Bregman and Altuve since the very beginning of this streak. They find a way at this time of year. Certainly amid controversy at the outset of the streak, but it's continued long past uh, the, the, the managerial change and a lot of the different uh, things becoming public about what happened in 2017. They have done things uh, in, a, in, a, in a fair competitive environment at a very high level for a very long period of time. You have to give them credit. And, and yet, to your point, they were 4-9 and nine this year against the Mariners. Uh, they were uh, better against Texas. They were 9-4, and four, Houston yeah. was. So that's a, another little reminder of, of how close perhaps the Mariners have been. 
when Verlander is is at the top of his game as he was in this series against Minnesota, when when Framber Valdez finds it, when Christian Javier finds it, they obviously had to get a little more creative with their pitching in Game Four. They're they're maybe not as deep on the mound as they were a year ago, but they've got a great closer. They've got a future Hall of Famer who's headlining the rotation. To me, guys, it is still Houston unless and until someone else proves otherwise. Yeah, JP, I think it was uh, Justin Verlander who mentioned this after they clinched yesterday that the culture that those guys have put in place has kind of carried them through this. And as much as it is painful to talk about the Astros and as much as we dislike them out here, they do have that enviable veteran culture in place. Are you seeing signs of that with the Mariners? I mean, we heard Cal Raleigh take it on himself to really be a vocal leader this year. We know what J.P. Crawford's done. Is Are the pieces there, and do they still need to maybe find some more voices to get to where these Astros are? Yes, they're, they're there. I think the Mariners, to be honest, when you look at the, the journey of being 100% there, of being a, a World Series team, I would put the Mariners at about 70% of the way. Hmm. And maybe even 75 because... They have, again, as long as it's healthy, they have the starting pitching. The the bullpen, I think you really have to address this offseason. I know you might say, well, why is that? The bullpen was pretty good when you think about the way that Brash and Topa had pitched in, in Munoz. But I, I think you cannot count on that level of consistency from the same relievers year after year. History says that is not likely to happen. So I think you almost have to... If I'm the Mariners, I approach the the bullpen additions this offseason almost as if I had an average to below average bullpen instead of a really good one. That's how I would look at it. I, I would I would go in there and address it and, and put some different looks in there, probably get one more left hander, really address that bullpen. Uh and then I think on the on the position player side, my recommendation, and we've talked about names like this before, they need to find their their version of the Astros Michael Brantley and the at-bats that, that Brantley put forward, whether that person is Anthony Santander, whether it's Pete Alonso, whether it's in free agency, a, a Cody Bellinger. You need one more guy who has been in the postseason before who doesn't swing and miss a bunch. Uh, I mentioned before Jose Ramirez as being the guy that I think is the ultimate target for them this offseason. He's, to me, the dream acquisition if they can pull that off. That to me is is where they need to go with this. And uh, yes, it would help if it's a if it's a leader, uh, someone who's got that that presence in the way that Michael Brantley does. But I think that the core of this team is there. I think that J.P. Crawford and and Julio and Cal Raleigh they've got some guys that are that are vocal. I think whether it's internally or externally. And I think now I would if I'm a Mariner fan, I would not care how much this this new acquisition talked as long as he didn't strike out a lot. <laughs> That's what I would care about the most from this new acquisition. Yeah, there you go. Hey, uh, we were talking about Bryce Harper uh, about a half an hour ago, and I just he's one of those guys. I think the reason why I like him so much, JP, is because he's gone sort of full circle, um, or I guess not full circle, 180, I guess, with uh, with me, right. half a circle. Uh, but, yeah, I just I, I don't – I 
did not like him in the beginning. I felt like he was cocky. And now, you know, his embracing the Philadelphia fans is very real. I mean, you can see that it's not just contrived. He, is, he really seems like he loves it there. And I, I, I think that's why I like it that he just entirely turned around, in my mind anyway, to be like one of my, not only a, just an awesome player, I love to watch him hit, but, but also just as a, as a guy, as a teammate, as a, you know, a guy that, uh, that loves the fans in Philly. I agree. And Philly is one of my favorite sports towns uh, for a lot of reasons. I just I love the, the grit of the of the fans there. I love how much the teams there matter. And, and Bryce has absorbed that and reflected that and made it part of his ethos. To me, guys, the, the stars that I really enjoy watching, you think about the the the, the, the fullness of a, of a person's career from start to finish. And and there are a lot of things that you care about in terms of who is an all-time great, who you're really drawn to, if he's not one of your hometown guys, let's say. Mm-hmm. And, and I really admire guys who fit into a few different categories. Number one, does he really love the game? Number two, does he play the game with a passion? Number three, does he have the respect and admiration of his teammates? And I think in that score, Harper is is aces across the board. He also does something else that I really care about a lot, which is he posts, he plays. He he came back after this, this surgery and found a way to get back on the field faster than anybody thought was possible. That says a lot to me about how much he loves the game and how much he values being on the field. You know, the way that he's played the game takes a toll on your body. He probably never was going to be a candidate to put together a Ripken-esque streak because of just the way that he plays the game. He plays it like a linebacker, and I say that with great affection. Uh, and I think that that's <laughs> part of what makes him great. And and I tell you what, you, you think about a moment like the other night and, and the Arcia and what Arcia had said and uh, the, the reports about him sort of mocking Bryce's decision after Game 2 – and and then for him to hit two homers mm-hmm. and stare him down twice, everybody, it's not that easy. This is not basketball where, guess what, even if it's an off night, LeBron's going to still probably score 20 points. It doesn't work that way in baseball. It, it's really hard to hit a home run, and it's really hard to do it twice in a playoff game. Like That, that just doesn't happen. Uh, especially answering the bell and coming back. Uh, this honestly reminded me, <laughs> it was uh, the 2011 World Series, and there was a, a weird relay at the end of Game 2 in St. Louis where basically Pujols made a mistake uh, and, and then didn't talk to the media afterward. And so a lot of us were, oh, my gosh, what's going on? Does, is Albert, does he not understand accountability? All the, all the media stuff that gets said when someone doesn't talk to the media after a, after a difficult game. And, and sure enough, the next game, Pools hits not one, not two, but three home runs in Game 3 of the World Series in Texas. And I'll never forget it. He just he answered, answered the bell. And I, I, I love it when players do that. Hey, John, if you look at the, uh, the team that's sitting there waiting, the winner of this Phillies-Braves series, the Arizona Diamondbacks. And we've watched a lot of Diamondbacks baseball out here because of Paul Seawald recently. Could you have envisioned them doing this? I mean, what does it take for a team to get hot in the postseason like this? 
it's it was not something I expected. I think it it affirms the the essential nature of this playoff structure, which is if you get in as a wild card team and you get hot, you can do anything. There there was nothing in the regular season that would have suggested it was likely for the Diamondbacks to sweep the Dodgers and certainly do so in in relatively lopsided fashion, at least early on in the series. So you were not expecting the Dodgers to play a three-game series against a team that they finished comfortably ahead of, and the Dodgers never holding a single lead in three games. That was totally unexpected. Now, the part that was expected to some degree was I think a lot of people realized that the Dodgers were probably going to have some pitching issues because of the number of guys they were missing. Like That part was not a huge surprise. But the dominance that the Diamondbacks have put together is a surprise. And it does, I think if you want to look at it and, and say where's the evidence about how the playoff format skews things a little bit, yeah, I I think that, that that it's there. I mean it's 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 clearly something that you have to think about. But then again, you've got the Astros who they're right back in the ALCS like always and they had a bye. So they last year they didn't even lose a game in the American League playoffs and they made it back to the to the World Series. So I, I think we're seeing the layoff play a role here. We're also seeing a team in 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 Arizona with a lot of young talent and some underappreciated stars. I think Christian Walker is underappreciated. Gabriel Moreno has been a really nice find for them in a trade. And, of course, Seattle's own Corbin Carroll, who's been magnificent in the way that he plays and, and a threat all around the field. I was looking at his numbers. You know, He's someone that he, he always has had a good knowledge of the strike zone, but when you have more walks than strikeouts in at, through your first five postseason games, that says a lot about how much you're staying within yourself and how calm you are because it's easy. I've seen it even for the best and most talented players, your first playoff experience, you get a little bit amped up and it's normal. There's been a lot of great players who haven't had great playoffs early on in their career. Well, Corbin Carroll looks like he's relaxing and he's playing, you know, playing a a game up around green Lake somewhere in high school. He looks like he looks that comfortable right now. So uh, I think he's just been a lot of fun to watch and, and Corbin Carroll is one of the big reasons why the Diamondbacks, they probably won't be favored in the NLCS against either team that they could play, but they've got a chance because they've got someone as talented as Corbin Carroll. JP, we've seen the numbers and what, you know, obviously everybody loves the all of the rules now for Major League Baseball. Is that starting to reflect in like, you know, playoff numbers and things like that? I mean, is it going to increase uh, any numbers back yet on whether or not more people are watching baseball because of that? It's a great question. And I was actually having a conversation uh, a couple of days ago with someone in the industry I, and, and it's interesting that we began this segment with the with the news read on Deion Sanders and the late kickoff times. <laughs> it's it's hard for me, even though I work in TV, uh, it's hard for me to really understand how we collectively judge success now. Uh, as linear TV changes and fewer people under the age of forty have a cable subscription. What, what what does a ratings point mean versus a stream versus a social media impression? Uh, these are questions for people that are way above my pay grade. I just try to say the right thing at least you know fifty or sixty percent of the time. Uh, that's that's my, that's my job. But I I think that the the overarching story and this and this comes from 
people that I talk to when I pick up my kids from school or when I'm at a, a sporting event that's even not baseball and people hear, okay, what do you do for a living? I'm a you know, baseball broadcaster. A lot of times they'll say, hey, like I, I went to the ballpark a few times this year more than I did before, and the game is moving better. There's more action. I like it. It's, it's been good. Wait, JP, JP, they never say, I wish there'd been more waiting. Right, that's very true. <laughs> I've not yet heard that. I've never heard that from anybody except for my dear friend. So that's one dear friend of mine said that. I, I can't remember. Uh, I'm not going to not gonna throw him under the bus right now okay, who said good, that. Good. But, uh, but no, I, I think that in, in general, it's, it's a better product. It's empirically yeah. a better product. And so however that comes out in terms of ratings, I've always – and to me, it's, it's always so subjective. It's to, to the, the sort of the, the flukiness of a, of a TV rating. So if it was a Dodgers-Yankees World Series that got amazing ratings but was a sweep versus if it's the most classic seven-game World Series ever with lead changes in the 10th inning of every single game between the D-backs and the Rangers, but the ratings aren't good – does either one of those things really, really meaningfully change the place of the game in our country right now? I would say no. I would say in many ways the die has already been cast. We had a really great regular season. We've had some good moments already in the postseason. I would expect that as, as the, the layoff wears off for all these teams and everybody that's, that's playing still has one series and gotten into a good rhythm – I think we'll see better and better baseball as the as the month goes along, and I would expect we'll still see some changes as as the sport moves forward. Do I think that the playoff format today will be the playoff format at the end of the decade? I don't, because I think we'll probably start moving towards expansion and more teams and two different leagues of sixteen teams, which makes the playoffs different. I think all that is coming, but for now, the game's in a great spot, and and the changes that they made this year to the rules. Uh, again, uh, I have not heard anyone say, my friend, that I wish there was more waiting. <laughs> the baseball season may be over, sadly, but we will keep the conversations going both on air and online, and I'll put it all together for you to find in one place. We'll do this again soon. Until then, take care.